Last week, uh, we dove into this passage in Romans chapter 6 and we looked at what it means to be dead to sin. And uh, I have been uh, preaching here in this congregation uh, in some form or fashion for over a decade now. And in the course of that time, um, obviously there's been some some ups and some downs and there's been some... Uh, some memorable sermons that uh, the Lord just seemed to use in a certain way. And uh, as I reflect back, there's always those moments that you just kind of know that I don't know where that came from. I didn't have anything to do with that. And if you saw my notes, you'd realize a lot of things I say. I don't know where that comes from. It's not on my paper. But um, last Sunday night was Super Bowl Sunday. So, in other words, that means that only the real fanatics were here. I mean, less than the fanatics that are here tonight. Okay? So it was the smallest of small crowds. And in all the time that I've preached at this church, I have never had so many people respond to a message like that. I didn't even get home to begin watching the tape Super Bowl. I think when I pulled up in my driveway, I had nine text messages or phone calls pertaining to last Sunday night's message. And then by Monday morning, they started again. I got emails of people uh, just testifying of how the Lord uh, used the truth of Romans 6 to minister to their heart. And it's just amazing that in uh, uh, a, a service like a Sunday night service, what an important issue assurance of salvation is as we... Uh, as believers, so oftentimes, uh, I guess the danger in this crowd is, is that we we want to follow Christ and be obedient to him so desperately and we want to honor him in our lives. And so we tend to be a little bit harsher and more critical on ourselves. And therefore, we have a tendency to struggle and Satan uses that against us. And then all so many of you deal with people on a regular basis who struggle with assurance of salvation. And so tonight we'll go back to Romans chapter 6 and we will uh, recap and then move forward into even more. I spent the week uh, just studying in this passage. And I'll be honest with you that my real, my real, I literally sat over there last Sunday night thinking to myself, this is what the devil's telling me. Are you crazy? Nobody's going to understand anything you're going to say. Because it's just such a technical passage in Scripture. And yet, look at what God does. And so I spent all week uh, in these 11 verses. And I think I've learned uh, as much this week as I've learned the entire course of my Christian life all over again in these 11 passages of Scripture. So uh, let's just ask the Lord to bless our learning and our uh, study out of the Word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we come before You now. And Lord, we just humble ourselves before uh, this glorious truth, Lord. We we see so many wonderful things about You, Lord, and what You have accomplished. And Father, the God that You are and who we are in You, Lord, just illustrated in such beauty and such perfection in Romans 6. Thank You, Lord, for just the amazing gift that these passages are. And Father, I just pray that, Lord, again, as only you can, that you would take these truths, Lord, and you would just weave them so into our hearts, Lord, that we might leave here tonight secure and carrying with us these truths, Lord, and that you would use them, Father, as we go out and minister in the gospel, Lord, that we might be able to retain this information and use it as we minister to those who struggle with these same tendencies, Lord, and especially those who do not know you and who have false assurance. We ask you now to be glorified in this in Jesus name. Amen. Romans chapter six. That's page 1298 in the pew Bible in front of you. If you need a Bible, let's begin reading verse one, Romans six, verse one. What shall we say then? Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. 
For if we have been unified together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For He who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once and for all. But for the life that He lives, He lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. What a blessing that passage is. So here's sort of a recap of where we left off last week. We, first of all, established that clearly in this opening passage, what then shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? If ever we needed a proof that man was born into sin, there it is. That only the human heart could be so wicked as to receive the grace of God and then contemplate Well, if I'm forgiven, if I'm utterly and totally forgiven, then maybe I should just sin it up. And Paul responds with the strongest of all statements in the Greek, certainly not, or no, no, no way should you do that. Then how shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? And here we said that this... This word died is clearly in the past tense. You can see that clearly in your English translation. It's something that has happened in the past. Therefore, a change has occurred. Wouldn't we all agree that if there's been a death, there's been a change? Things have changed if there's been a death. So there's no way around this issue of change. And here's sort of where we get into some confusion, okay? That there is this sort of permeating belief system in American Christianity that there can be salvation apart from transformation. And that's clearly just not possible. It's unbiblical and it's illogical just to imagine. Imagine that the God of the universe could come into your life or my life and there would be no change. It's just utterly insane to think such a thing. But... If you look around or listen to conversations that you hear, what you'll find is that many people will claim to be saved and their claim is based on some one-time experience at some revival or some camp when they were a teenager or some thing they filled out or some, you know, whatever this moment in time was. And therefore they have clinging to this false assurance that uh, this fire insurance that they're going to be okay. But see, apart from transformation, there can be no salvation. There can be no salvation. So the question that springs up in our heart is this. Does the fact that we sin indicate that we lack salvation, that we're, that we're not saved? And 1 John 1, 9 straightens that out and says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's clearly not the case. That the process of sanctification will not be completed on this earth. And the reason for that, as we'll see, is because as long as this flesh is attached to me, I will not achieve perfection. And so what I want you to understand is that when we talk about salvation, when the New Testament talks about salvation, the word salvation is referring to either justification, sanctification, or glorification. And it's important to be able to delineate the differences between those three Uh, words and those three understandings. Because if you don't, you're going to get really tangled up in the New Testament. So let me give you some quick examples so you understand what I'm talking about. Justification happens at the moment of salvation. It means to be declared righteous. We talked about this last week. The Bible says in Romans 3, 24 through 26, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God sent forth as a propitiation, a payment by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance, God has passed over. So you see there's forgiveness in this issue of justification. In His forbearance, God has passed over the sins that we previously 
previously committed to demonstrate at the present time, you see how all this comes together, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Justification is at the moment of salvation. Now, you read that and and you might not understand justification and you could get yourself a little tangled up and begin to think that maybe justification is this ongoing process. Maybe it's something that you and I need to work towards to finally fully be justified. That maybe someone who comes to Christ with more sins than someone else would have to work harder or do more to achieve final permanent justification. Now, I know that sounds silly in this context. As I look around the room, I don't think any of you are buying into this theology or this false doctrine. But listen, major mainline denominations believe this very thing. And so you got to understand, justification has nothing to do with you or I. It is 100% Christ and Christ alone. And it is a definite, finite moment in time when the sinner who is absolutely deserving of nothing but death is declared righteous in the heavenly courts of law. Justification. Then there's sanctification, which is initiated at the moment of salvation, but spans across the entire span of our lifetime and is not completed until glorification, which is the culmination. I know there's a lot of shuns in this. The culmination of our salvation. Now listen. So sanctification, the process. And and let's just clarify a couple of things. Justification is not experienced. Okay? This is important because this this gets down to that issue of, you know, well, uh, you know, at the moment of salvation, I prayed this prayer and then I feel the same. Okay? Well, what... What you experience is sanctification, which is the process that begins. Now, you may feel a little relieved. You may feel a little different. But there's no actual feeling change in justification. You can't relate to the change that has taken place because you've been declared righteous by God. But to you and me standing here in that instant, that's not something you experience. Now, sanctification, you do. And so in the moment of salvation, sanctification initiates. And so you will begin to experience that. And it's different for all of us. We all grow at different paces and different rates and in different ways. So, for example, to help you understand this, I brought with me tonight my birth certificate. Now, my birth certificate's black. I I think, does anybody else have a black birth certificate? So, shouldn't that be a death certificate? Shouldn't a birth certificate be white? And so I got to looking at this, and granted, this is, this is old, because it's mine, and uh, I was going to bring Brother John's, but his is carved in stone, so it was a little heavy, so we'll use this, okay? Amen. Joe told me that, just letting you know. So, I brought this tonight. Uh, so, I brought... <laughs> that was funny. I brought... Amen. He doesn't remember. Okay. Well, boy, when you lug that thing into the into the DMV, it's embarrassing. But anyway, so here we are. The, the reason I brought you this tonight is because you know I really wanted you to, I wanted you to have absolute, undeniable, verifiable proof that I was born. There it is. Is everybody feeling better now? See now, think think with me for a second. You don't need this to know I was born, do you? No. How do you know I was born? You see me live. Right? Now, justification, there is a rebirth certificate in that moment that you're declared righteous. Okay? But you know what? This is not what the world sees to know that you're alive as a believer. It's the process of sanctification. It's the growth as a Christian that assures that you are a believer. Are you with me? So this, if justification were this piece of paper that formally announced the fact that I am declared righteous, 
It wouldn't be what you would go by to know that I was ever born. You would simply look at the fact that I am alive. And so as we go forward, especially in Luke chapter 6 on Sunday mornings, we're going to see that it's very important to to know who's a believer and who's not a believer by looking at this process of transformation. That's the part we see. Okay? Then there's glorification. And glorification is the culmination of our salvation. It's the end. It's this future destination when we are face to face and one with Christ. And Romans 13, 11 says this. Paul says, and do this knowing the time. That now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Now, you might want to write down Romans 13, 11, because here's the deal. If you don't understand what glorification is, you're going to have a hard time explaining to anybody what Romans 13, 11 means. I have had so many people try to use Romans 13, 11 to tell me that uh, we're not saved once and for all. And they'll say, well, Paul says right here that, that his salvation is nearer than when he first believed. <clears throat> Wrong. That's glorification. Paul's talking about the culmination of his process of sanctification. So you can, I'm not just telling you this so that you, you know, can act smart and have all this knowledge. I'm telling you this because this will help you understand the New Testament and keep you from getting sucked into error. Because there are those who will twist scriptures around. And if you use something that's talking about glorification for sanctification or justification, it's going to not make sense and it's going to be mixed around and you're going to be in trouble. So you need to know the context and understand what these passages of Scripture mean. So then in verse 3, Paul goes on and here's what he says. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death, therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death. Now, we spent some time here talking about the fact that baptism means to be immersed in. There's no water in this passage of Scripture. We're not talking about water baptism. We're talking about being immersed or unified with Christ. And so we see this now we're being introduced to this issue of justification, this issue of being forgiven, that it's in this union we're declared righteous. We've been baptized into His death. Christ died for the forgiveness of our sins. We've been immersed into that baptism for the forgiveness of our sins. We've been unified once and for all and cannot be separated. Once we come together in union with Christ, it is a permanent union. Then, in the second half of four, Paul says that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now we begin to see this experience. See, you walk in newness of life. You're going to know that. You're going to sense that. You're going to feel that. I'm going to see that in you. You're going to see that in me. This is the process of sanctification. That as we are justified, then we embark on this journey of transformation, this living, this, this life and this newness of life. And that is experienced. And that is obvious. And that is, that is something that you can actually see in a person. You know, I have marveled at the process of salvation in my children. They're, they're different, they're, they're unique, but yet I can see the sanctifying hand of God upon their life. And you should as well. I think I've shared this testimony before, that there was a lot of heat in my family after uh, uh, one of my children made a profession of faith. Because uh, people in my family started jumping up and down about when are you going to baptize them, when are you going to baptize them. And I guess I, uh, you know, just didn't have peace about that. Just didn't have peace about it. And so I waited. And I waited. And I just kept putting it off, putting it off, putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. And then guess what happened? God saved him. And when God saved him, that was it. And I began to see the process of transformation in his life. The actual tangible fruit of the Spirit of God indwelt within my own son. 
And so, you, 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 it, it's not some mystical thing, okay? God is not playing some game with us so that we're always uh, wondering or searching or clinging for. God gives us assurance as a gift. And let me tell you something. The Bible is packed, just chalk filled with utter assurance of salvation. And when we don't have assurance, there's a reason. And it's not God. It is not God. It's, it's us. There's, we, are, we are replacing truth with lies. We, are, we have sin in our life. There's something going on, but it's not God. God desires that you walk in utter and complete confidence in your salvation and your position in Him. So, at the moment of justification, think of it this way. There's been a funeral and a birth. The old man has died... But yet there's been a rebirth of the new man. And this new birth, whenever something's born, what does it do? It grows. It transforms. It changes. Praise God. It doesn't stay in diapers forever. It soon learns how to, uh, you know, talk and walk and grow. And eventually it gets a job and moves away and pays its own bills. Amen? Okay, so that's what it happens. So there's this this funeral and a birth that all are initiated in the same instant of justification. So, Hebrews 2.11 says this, For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now, think this through with me for a second. All right? The writer of Hebrews, talking about Christ, says, For he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified, that's us, are all of one, for which reason he is, who's he? Jesus is not ashamed to call them brethren. In other words, you know when the scripture says that he might be the firstborn among many brethren? Talking about us in Romans chapter 8. Okay, I want you to see this in regards to this union. All right? Christ sees you and I as his brothers and sisters in Christ in union with him. And we are all of one, for which reason he's not ashamed to call us brethren. In other words, at the very least, at the very least, if you could just understand that is Christ going to lose one of his own brothers or sisters? Is Christ going to allow the enemy to snatch away one of his own family members? Is Christ going to just think this through? That he's not ashamed to call them brethren. This is a phenomenal truth. And so these are the kinds of things that you've got to saturate your heart with so that when life gets hard and when circumstances become a little shaky and uneasy and suddenly you're being attacked from every direction... And really, the process of sanctification is heating up in that. The Bible says elsewhere in the book of Romans that it's through all these persecutions and through all these struggles that God's heating up the process of sanctification in you and in me. But in that, that we won't waver, that we won't fall weak, that we won't... You need to remember something. You've been unified permanently with Christ. There's a union at salvation. It cannot be separated. It cannot. And Christ, at the very least is not, which this is so selling it short, but at the very least would never allow, would never allow one of his own brothers or sisters to be snatched away. What does he say in John chapter 10? That I know my sheep, they hear my voice. Nothing. What what can take him out of the palm of his hand? Nothing. Zero. Zip. There is, there's never been anything that can take you out of the palm of his hand. So there's security in that. This union gives us the benefits that we enjoy as we go through the process of transformation. Okay? We take the forgiveness of sin and we receive that into our hearts. And then we have the comfort of the Holy Spirit within us who lead, guides, and direct us. We have this guaranteed surety of heaven. We have fellowship with God through prayer. Whenever a believer kneels down to pray, you need not wonder if God's hearing you. You need not wonder if it's bouncing off the ceiling. It doesn't matter. Just like we talked about when you struggle to worship. Listen, the struggle is on our part. It's not on God's part. 
Okay, there are many times where I kneel and pray and I'm just battling to, to fellowship with the Lord and I'm struggling through what I'm trying to communicate with Him or just commune with Him and fellowship with Him. But He doesn't have the problem. I do. Whenever you, as a son or daughter of Jesus Christ, whenever you kneel yourself down, I mean, you don't have to kneel, but whenever you bow your head in prayer, your Heavenly Father hears you. Listen, Jesus Christ intercedes on your behalf. It is a rock-solid truth that you need not ever doubt. He hears your even the simplest cries. I thought about this this morning when I watched that video of Renee. And I watched how she, did you notice how she would just, in the midst of all the chaos that's going on, if you can imagine being in her shoes and, and all that's going on, and there were several times where she would just say, and I just cried out, God, help me. Help me to remember how to perform CPR in the midst of... Now, did she get on her knees and did she say, Oh, Holy Father, will you... No! She didn't say, God, help me. He hears that prayer. He loves you. You... His ear is inclined towards His children. And then we have the blessing of fellowship with each other in this family, the, the church. We find purpose for our lives. We now have direction and meaning in life. And so through this union of Christ, l- listen to these amazing things that have happened. So this should be mostly new information from here forward. This union in Christ, the body of sin has been destroyed. Watch this. Verse 6 starts with knowing this. Now this is important. God really worked on me this week on this issue. This little phrase, knowing this, it's, it's Paul's way of saying... Obviously, or everyone knows this, or he's not saying this as new information, or he's not expecting anyone to be astonished by what he's saying. He's just simply saying, well, duh. There's three things that follow, duh, and here they are. That the old man was crucified with him. Now that's important, because there's been a a death. Something's been crucified. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ that I no longer, that I know it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, there has been a crucifixion. An old man has been crucified and now there is a newness of life that we live in Christ. Now, Over and over, when I read these passages to you, I want you to pick up on the way the Bible communicates these truths. For example, in Galatians 2.20, Paul says that it's no longer I who live, but Christ in me, for which I now live in the flesh. I uh, I no longer live of myself, but it's Christ who is in me. So now it's not physically Christ who is in me, but it's the Spirit of God who is in me. It's Christ who has paid the price for me. He loved me and He gave Himself for me. Now, that's all past tense, yet it's all presented as moving forward into the future. Amen? So you can see that, that there's something that has occurred, but it has initiated something else. So this old nature has been crucified. Now, here's where some of you uh, had some questions and some some various uh, uh, just you know asked me some things, and so I hopefully got those cleared up, and I want to address some of those tonight. That in this issue of the old nature, because there's a lot of false doctrine, a lot of wrong theology about what this means about this old man, this old part of us that has been crucified. And I, I said last week that the new man. That salvation is incarcerated in the flesh. Now, you need to understand that there's not an old man and a new man that are battling within you for supremacy. That is very important to understand. That dualistic understanding will lead you to all sorts of problems. Okay? There may be a war... But the war is not the old man against the new man. The old man has been crucified. What battle is it if he's dead? There's no battle, right? Nobody's going to the graveyard to pick a fight. It's over. Okay, so the old man is dead. Now, there's many people who will try to teach this dualistic understanding that there's this battle inside and that it's, it's, it's sort of up to us or we have, to, we have to sort of struggle through this, you know, to, to rely upon the new man so the new man overcomes the old man. No, that is 
absolutely, positively not the case. If you were to take that position that the old and the new nature coexist, which theologically it can't happen because the Spirit of God does not share room with the Spirit of darkness, okay? So that's out anyway. But even if you could somehow make this case, then, then think this through. Everything, literally everything that you encounter, every temptation that you come across, every sin that you commit, everything would be excusable. Because here's what we do. We just walk around and blame it on who? The old man did it. And you ladies, they wouldn't know who they were talking about. Us or, you know, the old man within you. You see, that, there's no victory in that. If, if the old man and the new man are still battling out, then where's the guarantee of victory? The guarantee is in the crucified death of the old man. That is essential. So when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. And then he goes on to specify that old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. All things. So when you hear this, which I'm sure you do. I don't know if you notice it or not, but there are many very popular, broadcasted pastors who will teach this dualistic understanding. And it simply will not square with Scripture. And it frankly is... A, a, a pathetic mistake because it totally shortchanges the accomplishment of Christ at the cross. So the second thing, so there's three, there's three things in here. I didn't touch anything. There we go. There's three things in here. The first one is that the old man's been crucified. We're in verse 6. The second one is that the body of sin might be done away with. And I touched on this last week. I said that this body of sin, it doesn't mean this physical body of sin. Again, that would not make sense because you would look at your life and look at my life and the body of sin means like the body of water, the body of truth, the totality of sin. That, that sin, the totality of sin no longer possesses, has possession over you and I. And it's been done away with, the Bible says. Listen, it's not eradicated. In other words, all sin is not gone. I mean... None of us would believe that, now would we? But here's what's happened. It's been done away with in the sense that it's been deprived of its controlling power. The entire body of sin no longer controls the child of God. That is a critical point. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. See, this scripture makes no sense apart from that truth. Because how can you no longer be a slave to sin if in fact... The body of sin or the existence of sin that has, is still there because we see it on the news every single day of our lives and we see it all around us all the time. But if it still has power, then how are we not slaves to it? Now, we'll clarify some things because we go on. And he says that, there will, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now, a slave is someone who's dominated or, or under the influence of another person or a thing. And, and as I thought about this, I thought about some, some passages of Scripture that would, would help sort of clear this up even as we move into verse 7. He who has died has been freed from sin. So this issue of we're no longer a slave and that he who has died has been freed from sin. The, the Bible says in Romans 6.16, so just a few verses later, the Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Now, think about this in light of what Paul... I mean, we're in the same chapter of Scripture. So Paul is just logically delineating this process and now he's come to this... Now, wait a minute. If you choose to obey sin, you become a slave to that. But if you choose to obey righteousness, you become a slave to that. To which someone might say, well, wait a minute, you just said we're not a slave. Exactly. That's exactly what I said. Well, how does that work? Well, think about this. Uh, January 1, 1863, Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, what that did is that said that all persons held as slaves are henceforth free. And at that moment that that decree was made by the United States, approximately five to six hundred thousand slaves were now free. 
But guess what happened? Most of them didn't go running free into the streets. Most of them were afraid of freedom. Most of them didn't understand what freedom meant. Most of them, as bad as slavery was, they felt comfort in that because at least it was known. And it was a huge struggle to get freed people to receive freedom. Now, take that line of thinking and bring it back and understand Romans 6.16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves as, as slaves to sin, you are, when you obey sin, you become slaves to that which you obey? In other words... Does that change who you are? Does that change the fact that you've been set free? No. But if you choose to obey something, even though you're free, you still live as a slave. So if you have been set free, but you choose to stay in slavery, then you live as if you are a slave. You understand? You see, because just because you are something doesn't mean... You live as something. I mean, obviously, we wouldn't be having this talk for two weeks if everybody understood that. Because what we do is, there's so many people who are saved and yet fail to live the riches of the Christian life because they're uncertain or unsure or being deceived by the enemy as to what is actually at their disposal. And so we fail to experience all that God has given us in salvation. Are you with me? I don't want to lose you. I want you to stay with me. All right. So this, there's this sin has this trickery. Okay. And the body of sin has not been eradicated, but it has lost its dominion. It's lost its dominating power. Now, that doesn't mean that you and I aren't going to get tricked and duped. I always think about, it's been so many years since... Uh, I've been to a Mardi Gras parade, so don't freak out and send me emails because I, I, don't, I don't need a lecture about that. But when I was a young, I lived in uh, New Orleans. And uh, I think when I was, let's see, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, we lived down in the Ninth Ward, New Orleans. And, of course, while I was there, obviously I'd never even been inside of a church. And, I mean, here I am, some blonde-headed kid from Hawaii, and I thought, Mardi Gras, what in the world are these crazy people doing? But let me tell you, the, my first Mardi Gras, I'll never forget. You know, I go out there to this parade, and, and when someone's describing it to me, I'm thinking, well, that's just the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. I mean, w- w- what do you get? I mean, what do you see? I mean, what's the point? But let me t- explain something to you. It wasn't 10 minutes into my first parade. Man, and I mean, I'm headbutting people and punching people and diving under, rolling things, trying to get beads and balloons. I mean, I'm running around like a maniac trying to scoop all this stuff up, right? It's like I just went crazy. And everyone around me is going crazy and you just get caught up in the moment. And then there's this little moment after the parade, if you remember this, after the parade where the winners sort of parade around in all their glory and splendor. You know, they wear all the things that they've gotten and they have the bags of the, you know, and so you see these young guys going around like, I'm the man, I am the man. Right? Now, what happens a week later? It's junk. I mean, a week after the parade, you're thinking, what was I doing? I mean, I got scabs on my elbows. I'm thinking, have I lost my mind? I mean, you see, sin dresses things up like Mardi Gras beads and makes it all dazzling and pretty to look at. And then you get caught up in the moment and caught up in the emotion. But here's what happens. After you've been sucked into it, once you sort of wake up on the other side and come out of the other side, you realize... Well, that was stupid. That just wasn't... That was ridiculous. You see, the saved person... It's not that we never fail. I mean, listen, we have to be cautious because we can be saved and and slaves to sin in our actions even though we've been declared free. So you've got to understand that. You can't just look around at someone's life and say, well, well, they must not be saved. No. Listen, you got to understand that we, 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 we all stumble and we all fall. But it's a, it's a trick. It's a lie. You don't have to anymore. Let me tell you something. When, when a lost person is like somebody who's actually believed 
that those beads and doubloons are real jewels. Because that's the way they live. Because that's what they actually think. You see, they're slaves to sin. That should help you understand the, the people that you witness to and you pray about. They, they, are, they, they are in trouble. You and I, on the other hand, we have been freed from that. We are no longer slaves to sin. We can say no. No. To any temptation that comes, we can say no. No. There is no temptation. Nothing that is can overpower what Christ has done in us. So, verse 8 says, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Now, again... This is in the present tense, but it means, or it's in the future tense, but it means the present truth, okay? The present imperative that we will live with Him. It doesn't mean that we will one day live with Him. It means that the way we will live now is by Him or through Him. In other words, if you say, it's kind of like this. If you say, well, Tony, how do you live? I say, with Him. Well, how do you do that with Him? You know, you say, well, how do you, how do you preach a sermon? With Him. You see, that's how you do it. That's how I do it. That's how we live. We live with Him. He is the power source. He is the reason. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the one that is working in us to allow us to be able to live this life free of the slavery of sin and under this this unbelievable dominion of being born under Adam, we're no longer under that. So, again, Jesus will encourage us and just say the most amazing things. In John chapter 8, verse 34 through 36, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Meaning, whoever's life is an ongoing process of sin. It is the pattern of your life. It's not one sin. It's the pattern of your life is sin. You're a slave to sin. But a slave does not abide in the house forever. Now, listen closely. But a son abides forever. See, a slave doesn't live in the house forever. A slave lives in the house for a time. A slave lives in the house while it's useful. A slave lives in the house while there's work to be done or there's a need or there's a, it's a season of life, but not a son. A son abides in the house forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you are free indeed. You see how that works? That the Lord Jesus is just pouring encouragement upon us as His people to understand, listen, we're one, the book of Hebrews says. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Then Jesus comes back and says, listen, I am am the, the Son and I abide forever. And if I set you free, you are free indeed. Meaning forever. This is not conditional. You can't lose it. It won't fleet away. It is once and for all forever. Verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. And this is important because there are mainline denominations that want to crucify Christ over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And the Bible, here it is, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Christ is died only once and for all. It was a one-time death. It was sufficient for the propitiation, the payment of our sin. That one time, there's no need to die again. Now, if that is true, which I'm, you're all receiving that, but hear me. If that is true, then logically and systematically, you can't die over and over and over in the old man. Now, can you? See, if He died once and for all, then when you're baptized into His death, you die once and for all. See, because you're baptized into His death on the merit of what He accomplished in His death. You see, so you don't die over and over and over. It's once and for all. So a lot of this uh, uh, just trepidation about salvation and a lot of the trickery that the devil wants to use to make you doubt your salvation or not believe where you are can be solved by just understanding that this is a once and for all death and propitiation. There's not this multiple thing. You're not, you're not dying over and over. You don't, if you don't wonder, you know, well, I'm saved, but you know, I just don't feel like the old man's dead. Well, no, 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 it is. 
That's the only way it happens. The Bible is crystal clear. And again in verse 10, Paul reiterates the same thought. That the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. That's it. I mean, what a glorious truth. Listen, he, he got it right the first time. He nailed it. He got a hundred on the test. He killed it. He hit the grand slam at the bottom of the ninth, won the game. I mean, he absolutely died the perfect death after the perfect life, paid the ultimate penalty in full. There was no residual. There was nothing left over. There's no remaining balance. And it was good enough to satisfy the courts of heaven. And it's certainly good enough if you're baptized into that death, that at that moment, that baptism into his death is good once and for all. It is finished. It is over. No need to wonder. No need to fret. No need to worry. He dies once and for all. Hebrews 10. Again, the writer of Hebrews gets this point across so well. Verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Again, this should ring familiar, okay? You hear this and see this all the time. There's the priest ministering daily these offerings and these sacrifices which can never take away sin. I mean, you just kill an animal, tomorrow you gotta to kill another animal, then you gotta kill another animal, and you just get in this perpetual motion, it's never good enough. Verse 12, but this man, capital M, this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. It's done! I mean, it's over, it's finished. That's what he meant when he said it's finished. It is finished. No, you need not worry, you need not wonder. He sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Now, what is he waiting for? Let me tell you something. He's not waiting because he's incapable. He's waiting in mercy. Because when his enemies become his footstool, which they already are, in the same sense that what's done is done, they're just able to operate in the, in the realm of loserness, if that makes any sense to you. It's over, okay? But here's the thing. He waits in mercy. Because in that moment, when his enemies become his footstool, it's over, period. They're sheep and they're goats. There's no more opportunities. There's no more, there's no more, you know, giving your testimony. There's no more, well, here's the reason why, you know, I didn't get saved. Well, here's the, no, no. And so when somebody comes to you and you're discussing salvation with them and they have, they bring up this issue of, well, well, I just don't understand how, you know, if God could stop the pain and suffering on the earth today, or they'll ask me that, well, Tony, do you believe that God could stop all the starvation on earth today? Absolutely. Which totally messes them up because they think, well, then why doesn't he do it? And I said, well, let me tell you why. Because one day he will do it. And by the grace of God... For your sake, it's not today. Because if it was right now, it'd be over for you. Over. You understand? It's grace. Listen, every moment is grace for the unrepentant sinner. Because when that moment ends, it is over. He's not waiting like, you know, gaining up his strength. Oh, no. He's, he's, He's holding back the justice of his wrath that is going to be unleashed on this earth in Revelation chapter 20. Let me tell you, it is the glorious grace and mercy of God. And you need to explain to those who are lost around you that your God is capable of doing all things. And He will accomplish them. But if He did it right now, it would be over for all those who are not baptized in His death and then baptized in His resurrection, the victory over sin. So... The salvation that was, think this through, the salvation that was planned by the Father has been procured by the Son and is now presented by the Spirit. Let me help you with this, okay? This is a a triune God that is sealing our assurance in salvation. And all three parts of the Trinity play a role in this. And if you think this through after everything we've learned, hopefully this will pull things together for you in your mind. Salvation is administered by the Father. That means He organizes and oversees the plan of salvation. It's administered by the Father, but it is accomplished by the Son. 
It was the Son who died on the cross for our sins and rose again to give us eternal life. So what was administered by the Father was accomplished by the Son and is applied by the Spirit. That the Spirit of God takes what Jesus has done and makes it our own. He lives within those who are redeemed. And the Spirit of God makes all that has been accomplished ours personally. And when we do not receive the assurance of our salvation, the problem is not that God is hiding. The problem is simple. Either the person is lost and apart from God and just clinging to some false hope and there's never been any moment of transformation in their life. There was some moment of decision. There was some moment that they're trying to make sound like justification. There was a moment that they're trying to cling to that was a declaration, but without any transformation, that is an empty promise. It's empty. But if you can look back at this point in your life, and you know what? You don't even have to play the game of, you know, well, it was on this day at this time and this. Listen, it's, it's simple. There's a moment in your life where something changed. What changed was you began to be transformed. And for some of us, it's ever so slowly. But you began to desire things that you used to not desire. You began to feel things that you used to not feel. You began to care for people that you have no reason to care for. Suddenly you had a heart for service. You, you suddenly had a, a, a heart to, to learn and be nurtured in the, in the Word of God. You had a heart for fellowship. You had a desire for things you know, that are unnatural. It's unnatural for a lost person. To want to get up on Sunday morning when they can sleep in and file on down to the church house and sit there and listen to some red-faced preacher scream at them. That's unnatural. It's unnatural. But let me tell you something. When you do it, it's supernatural. In other words, well, why do you do that? Listen, the last thing any of us in our lost state would do is give of our time, give of our money, and give up our sleep. Right? And look at us. Something's wrong, folks. We must be crazy. Some of y'all come three times a week. I mean, you really got it bad. You read your Bible all the time. And listen, you could drive a new car if you just quit tithing. You see? Well, why does that sound so, so incomprehensible to you? Because you've been transformed. Now listen, so when you're in a ditch... When you find yourself struggling, when your circumstances aren't adding up for you, just re- just back up to the truth and say, no, hold on. Today's not looking real great. But I'm in the process of being transformed. I'm not the person I used to be. I mean, suddenly I have a desire to have difficult conversations with people. That's not normal. It's just not normal. Normal is to just run away and ignore it. Well, you see... If, if, if you battle, and you battle and you battle, and it's the same, the same, the same. And really the truth is, is that you really are the same as you've always been. And maybe for you, you, you wake up and you come to church because you feel guilty. Because you're afraid God's going to kill you if you don't. You're afraid He's going to take away your health or He's going to burn your house down. And so you come to church. Well, see, there's something wrong there. There's something wrong. Paul said before he got into all this in Romans chapter 5 that the love of Christ is poured out in your hearts of salvation. In other words, that's going to change you. So you see, salvation is not this mysterious, ethereal, mystical thing. Salvation is a, is a guaranteed promise. From our gracious and loving Heavenly Father who orchestrated these events, who had total liberty to do this any way He wanted to. But He chose in His perfect wisdom to save us in such a way that we would know that we've been touched by something beyond ourselves because He loves us. 
and because He's good and because He's wonderful. And you know what's so wonderful about you and me and us getting together and seeing each other and talking to each other is that we get encouraged by watching this process of transformation taking place in one another, don't we? Yeah. And you know what? When things happen in the life of our body, you know, that's why... Listen, why, why, do you, why, why are so many of you so excited about what God did in Moldova? You didn't go. What's your problem? You know what your problem is? You see transformation. You see sanctification. And it just beams in your heart. And you're just like, God, you're so good. And you're just taking part in because your spirit's bearing witness with their spirit. Because God wants to give you assurance. So listen. I'm not underestimating the very real possibility. And there's one or two or three or ten people here tonight. And you've just been fighting this thing in your own strength. And, you know, the truth of the matter is is that, you know, the, the things in your life that, that other people might say look a little like transformation, they're not really sure, but you know in your heart they were all just strivings of your own power and your own strength. Well, after all you've heard tonight, all I can say is surrender. Wave the white flag. Stop fighting. Give it over to Him. And then you'll, no long, you'll be free indeed. You'll be free indeed. Sin will no longer have power over you. And for those of you in this room who, who are redeemed, listen very closely. The enemy is very aware of where your weakness lies. And he comes like a thief in the night, right to those areas of your life where you tend to falter and when you tend to fail and where you feel vulnerable, where you know that there's lots of shame and lots of guilt. Listen to me. You tell him no more. Paul ends this passage by saying, reckon yourselves dead to sin. That means in your mind, reckon, no, you are dead to sin. You tell the enemy no more. No more. I will not fall for this trick anymore. I'm done with this lie. No. And you call out on the power of God that is yours through salvation. It belongs to you. It's been granted to you. And you have 100% as much as a person can humanly possibly have. I don't have more than you have. We all have the same amount. You have the power to say no to that sin. Get out from under that lie. Just get out. Because listen, to stay under is to say, it's not to say, oh, I'm, not, I'm just, I'm too weak. Oh, oh, I just can't. Listen, that's all true. But to stay under is to say, God, you're, you're not powerful enough. Your payment on the cross for me was insufficient for what I'm dealing with. Listen, his enemies are going to be his footstool. And let me tell you something. In that moment, you and I, we'll stand there and we'll marvel. We think we knew power. We don't know power. He has power. Call on that power and say no to the enemy who's deceiving you. You're no longer a slave to sin. Rejoice in the assurance that God gives us in this glorious salvation. Let's stand. Bow our heads and close our eyes. What a great text and it should fill our hearts with thankfulness as we come before the Lord. And Father, we come now and we praise you and we thank you, God. We thank you for the assurance of salvation. We thank you for the truth of your word, Lord. I thank you for my brothers and sisters, Lord, and how the the process of transformation in their life, God, the supernatural spirit of God that is evidenced among my brothers and sisters. What a powerful Wonderful testimony to your goodness and your grace, Lord. And God, thank you so much that there are times in my own life where I feel down and I I feel weak and I feel pitiful and I feel like I am just overwhelmed by struggle. And my brothers and sisters encourage me through their lives. And remind me of the truth of who I am in you. 
Father, may that be true for those in this room who suffer tonight. God, set them free from the lies that the enemy would put into their heads, Lord. And Father, for the amazing courage that it would take for someone here who has been striving in You in their own strength and effort, God, would You break all the sin down? Would You call them unto You and would You save them tonight, Lord? What a glorious, glorious thing that would be. And God, will just give you all the glory and the praise. For you are the powerful God. You are the mighty God. You are the saving God. And the sure God. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.